You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 143. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. Lily Raff McCullough was raised on the East Coast as an environmentalist and an animal lover. Although she was a meat eater, she'd grown up learning that harming animals was wrong. After moving to Central Oregon for a reporting job in her early 20s, she began spending weekends fly fishing and weekdays interviewing hunters for articles and realizing her perception of hunters wasn't quite accurate. She met many whose connection to animals and the environment ran deeper than even her own. So she embarked on a journey learning to hunt. And through it, she discovered a fascinating firsthand way to learn about wildlife and the ecosystem in which she lived while bringing home healthy food for her family. As a hunter and a gun owner, using guns for an activity she loves, however, she is still deeply concerned about the epidemic of gun violence in our country. Matt Podolsky spoke with Lily about her journey and her perspective as a hunter on responsible gun ownership. Have a listen. My name is Lily Rath McCullough, and I'm a journalist and writer in Bend, Oregon. Excellent. So um, I'm, I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about your book. You, you wrote this memoir, Call of the Mild, um, which is about how you learned how to hunt and sort of the personal journey that you took through the process of learning this skill. Um, and I want to start off just by exploring this personal journey a little bit. Um, you know, tell us, well, let's start off like, you know, tell us where you grew up and, you know, was, was hunting a part of your childhood? Not at all. No, <laughs> hunting had, <laughs> had nothing to do with my childhood. I grew up in, um, a suburb of Washington, DC that's called Tacoma Park. It's in Maryland and it's, um, just a very, um, it's, it's a very, um, liberal kind of activist community. So it's a lot of, um, a lot of, there are just a lot of protests, a lot of political talk, a lot of political activism. It was a pretty different community when I was a kid. I'm almost 38 now and growing up there, it was a little bit more blue collar than it is today, but it's, um, but it's still, I'd say politically very similar to what it was when I was a kid growing up there. So one example that I like to give about Tacoma Park is that um, when I was really young, there was a big protest at the local food co-op because they started selling meat. So that's just, you know, <laughs> gives you a little <laughs> taste of what the community was like. It was definitely not, I didn't know any hunters growing up. Um, and, and if there were hunters living in Tacoma Park at the time, they were very quiet about it. Yeah. It was not something, not something that they would have advertised. Right. Very interesting. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, moving out West, it seems like was this, this turning point, um, for you that sort of led to, or at least was, you know, the, one of these steps that led to this sort of shift. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what inspired the move itself? Well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that I learned to hunt, but they all stem from from that initial move. So I moved, um, I moved from New York City. Well, let me just back up for a second. So I grew up in Tacoma Park. Then um, I left Tacoma Park when I was 18 and went to college in Connecticut. I went to Wesleyan University, which is another liberal bastion. Um, a, a lot of a lot of similar political think and and a lot of um, political activism that's very much on the the left side of the political spectrum. Um, and then 
after I graduated from college, I studied film studies and I moved to New York City after I graduated and I worked in the independent film industry. I had been active in my college newspaper and I'd actually been the editor in chief of my college newspaper. So journalism was something that I got interested in and involved with in college, but wasn't what I did right when I graduated. And then after a couple of years of living in New York City, I decided that I did want to work in journalism. And um, rather than try to get one of the super competitive jobs in in the New York or DC area, I decided that I would try moving out west for a couple of years and, and gain some experience and then then move back to the East Coast and get a more prestigious journalism job. So I applied to a handful of newspapers um, in the Pacific Northwest, which was an area that I'd been to on a road trip right after I graduated from college. And um, I got hired by the newspaper here in Bend, Oregon. So I moved out in the beginning of 2004 um, I just loaded a friend and I loaded all my belongings into a U-Haul and we drove across the country and I got a newspaper the day I arrived and looked at looked at the rental listings and found an apartment and moved in. I didn't know anybody. <clears throat> it's not a really uncommon thing to do in journalism to move somewhere um, <clears throat> for work, but yeah, I didn't know anybody. I didn't really know anything about Central Oregon, which is not really what people think of when they think of Oregon. It's not um, it's not rainy. It's not particularly politically liberal. Uh, it's very different from Portland and Eugene. It's the high desert. It's uh, Bend is is a small city. Um, it's now probably close to about ninety thousand people, but it's um, you know it's high desert. It's much more of a rural culture than than anything that I'd been around. And my job for the newspaper was covering this very rural area, big a big swath of land in um, southern Deschutes and northern Klamath County. There were actually no um, no incorporated areas in my beat, so I didn't go to any city council meetings. There was basically <laughs> no government that I that I wrote about. It was um, it was it was really interesting. It was really an education. And there were several things that happened after I moved to Bend that, that got me interested in hunting. Before we get into that, I mean, just tell me a little bit of like sort of first impressions, you know, of, uh, after, you know, like soon after you moved, I mean, is there anything that like stood out, uh, that was like surprising to you? Um, just, you know, as far as like the culture and, and the interactions you had with uh, the people. Oh yeah. There was just a ton of culture shock. I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was unlike anything I'd really been around before. Uh, I mean, Bend is one thing. Bend is kind of its own, was its own culture shock. Um, you know, I was, um, let's see, 24 when I moved to, to Bend and, um, Bend is a very young town. It's very outdoorsy. There's a lot of people that move here for the skiing, for the fishing, for the, um, just the kind of outdoorsy way of life. And I'd never really been around that. Um, so that was, that was one thing. I mean, any party that I would go to, people would ask me what I skied. What did you ski this weekend? And just kind of this strange assumption that I ski, I didn't know how to ski when I moved to Bend. And, um, you know, it was just kind of this weird, um, you know, presumptuous thing. I was used to people asking, what do you do? What kind of work do you do? Um, and that was, you know, considered an East coast question here. Um, but then the area that I was covering for the paper was, 
was like a whole other world away from Bend. It was just so different. I mean, I remember one of the things that was really challenging when I first started was I needed to dress. I would, I would drive every morning out to the area that I covered and kind of drive, did this kind of loop and, you know, looking for news stories and talking to different people. And then I would come back to the office and it was really challenging for me to find a way to dress that was um, appropriate for the office in Bend for the newsroom, but, um, but didn't just seem wildly overdressed in the communities that I was covering. I mean, I just stuck out so much, you know, <laughs> right. my shoes, the heels of all my shoes got chewed up because I was always walking through these gravel parking lots. Nothing was really paved. Um, yeah, it was just, it was really different. I mean, I know one of the things that was hard was figuring out how to, how to find out what was happening in these communities where there wasn't anything particularly, um, formal about them. They didn't have city council meetings, um, because they weren't incorporated areas. And it just kind of took a while and took talking to different people to figure out that like one of the big hubs of the community that I was covering was the hardware store. And so I would literally just kind of go to the hardware store and walk around talking to people. Um, the employees at the hardware store kind of got used to me doing that and didn't seem to mind too much. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really different from day one. There, there are some similarities to, to my experience. Um, right. So, I mean, I grew up in the Boston area, so in the Northeast and, um, you know, when I moved out to Boise, it, it wasn't, I, I had previously lived in Arizona, so I'd already been, I'd already spent a little bit of time out West, um, but Boise was really the first like community in the West that I moved to um, to to live in for a long period of time, and uh, you know the the thing that struck me that you know sticks in my memory is I remember you know soon after moving to Boise, um, I, I remember just just noticing that like um, people were much friendlier, like random people I didn't know that I would walk past on the street would like say hello to me. Um, and it, you know, and, and I think I still had this like sort of East coast mentality of like, you know, why are you talking to me? Like, do you want something from me? You know, like, yeah. And it took me, I mean, it took me a little while to realize of like, oh, these, like, they don't want, these people don't want anything from me. They're just genuinely being nice, you know, to strangers they see on the street, which is like something that you do in Boise, Idaho, you know? I got a little bit of that. Um, I, there was also a lot of suspicion. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a different thing when you're a reporter, particularly, you know, I was a reporter who was living in Bend, working for the Bend newspaper, but writing about these um, kind of satellite areas. And um, so there was definitely some suspicion. I mean, there were, there were things that kind of um, surprised me just you can never really get away from how small the community was. I mean, I would talk to somebody and they would say, Oh yeah, I saw your truck yesterday. I saw you, you know, you must've been talking to somebody at the sewer plant because I saw you down there yesterday. And I just think, Oh my God, how they know what I drive and they see me every time, <laughs> every time I come down here, every, like everybody in the area knows that I'm here. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a little bit of that. I mean, I think definitely in Bend is kind of a friendly, a friendly town. And there was, um, yeah, very different from New York in terms of, um, you know, you just come across so many fewer people in your day that it's a lot easier for people to, you know, acknowledge everybody that they come into contact mm -hmm. with in New York or in, a, you know, in Boston, that's an impossibility. The numbers are just too great. So you kind of filter out 
and in a small town, yeah, everybody, everybody that you meet matters. Um, and, and yeah, there is a kind of special consideration or friendliness that comes with that. Um, in some of the areas that I was covering, I wouldn't say that I was really surprised by how friendly people were. Although, you know, one thing that just has always surprised me about journalism in general is how quickly people warm up and how, how often, um, even when somebody would at first greet me with some suspicion or some skepticism, um, people are so generous in sharing their stories. Um, just is something that to this day just um, amazes me how often when you ask somebody to talk to you for a story, they just open up. People would invite me into their homes and um, let me sit at their kitchen table and tell me, you know, answer whatever questions I asked and tell me about their lives. And there was definitely an openness and generosity once, once we kind of made some, made some contact to begin. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think, I mean, I see that as well in, in, in my work as, as a filmmaker, you know, and I think that's, I, I think that is something that, that maybe like folks that, um, do the type of work like that you and I do where it's like you you have to go out and like meet these people and talk face to face with people who don't necessarily agree with you and don't share a lot of the same sort of you know belief system that you do and I think it leads to this understanding of like it it really doesn't matter like when you're face to face with somebody it's like the vast majority of people just you know like genuinely want to connect, you know? It's true. It's true. That's one of the things that I, that I love about um, living in a small town and in an area like central Oregon, where I live now, where, um, where there is this mix of people with such different backgrounds and such different beliefs. Um, you know, that rural urban divide is, is a real thing, but I think you're totally right. When two people are standing face to face, um, that, that shared humanity is, is the most important thing. And, um, it is really, it is really heartening and inspiring how often, um, we can just kind of see past differences and just, just talk at a human level. Um, I think that, yeah, as a journalist, that's something that I see every day. I think that's one of the really nice things about being a journalist who's not, um, not a political journalist or not a journalist in Washington, D.C. and and kind of that that power center of the national politics right now um, is that, you know, that seems to just so dominate the news and so dominate so much of the national conversation. And um, living in central Oregon, I feel like it's just very much um, a daily occurrence that people with opposing political views and really different personal backgrounds just just coexist. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I think that is very much connected to, you know, this this topic of hunting that, um, you know, we're going to get into here, because I think there is a, there are a lot of stereotypes, you know, on both sides. Um, and uh, I, I think it's it's difficult for a lot of people. And I mean, I imagine that that this was the case for you. I bet it was like really difficult for you to imagine like what what it even what hunting even was, what it looks like, you know what I mean? Um, and let alone imagine yourself you know, going out and, and, and participating in the, in that activity. Right. So, um, I mean, I do want to, I want to delve into a little bit of like, like, you know, where did, where did this idea come from? Like, where was the, you know, the initial seed of like this idea that led to you learning how to hunt? Mm -hmm. It was a few different things. Um, 
one of the things that I noticed was just that a lot of the people that I was meeting, a lot of my sources on my just regular beat. So the people that I would drive over to and talk to on a, on a daily basis or a near daily basis, um, I got to know them for a while. So I moved, moved in February and then, um, got to know them a while for a while. And then as you know, the summer started to wrap up, I started hearing from people that they were hunters, <laughs> they were getting ready for hunting, hunting season. And it was, at first kind of shocking to me, like these were people that I'd, you know, come to come to know and like, and then I discovered that they were hunters, like what? Um, and, uh, it was, it was really a shocking thing for me, not because when I really sat down and thought about it, not, it wasn't so much that it surprised me that these people that I'd come to know and like and respect were hunters. Um, but it was really shocking that I had such, um, deep seated beliefs about who hunters were and what hunters were, um, that I didn't even really know I had. Um, and that just really goes back to the stereotypes that you mentioned. I just, you know, grew up on Bambi and had just this very removed, I, I didn't think that I had opinions of hunters, but I really did. I had very deep seated, very negative opinions of hunters that I hadn't even realized I'd acquired. And so, um, it was kind of shocking to realize that, I, I had these images in my head and then these people standing in front of me clearly didn't fit those images. Um, and so that was just a, an interesting shift in my own, you know, just re some interesting self-reflection happened there. Um, and then there were a couple of other things. So I started meeting these hunters and, um, when I really started talking to them about hunting, what it was like, uh, what they loved about it, what they learned about it the thing that really struck me was how much they sounded like environmentalists. Um, they knew so much about the animals that they hunted and the ecosystems that sustained those animals. And they cared so much about them. I mean, people that, you know, I remember, a, um, a fire chief who I talked to on a regular basis and, you know, it was always kind of a formal thing. And then when, he started telling me about, he was a bow hunter. When he started telling me about hunting, he just lit up and became passionate in a way that I'd never seen him really be before. Um, and it was just, it was just so clear that he, he loved these animals that he hunted. He had just genuine affection for them. He cared about them. Um, he cared about the well-being of this, you know, deer population. Um, and so that was, that was just really interesting. It was this kind of aha moment for me that there's this common ground between somebody like me who grew up in, um, you know, very removed from the natural world, but with this kind of hypothetical love for, for the environment and for animals. Um, and then there are these people who grew up in a place where maybe they didn't consider themselves environmentalists, but they had this true love and knowledge of these animals and, and this, this ecosystem and it's just really, really striking to me that there was this commonality that I'd never acknowledged before. Um, and then a couple of other things happened. One is that the locavore movement was gaining steam and I just started, you know, thinking more about what I was eating and where it came from. And this was just kind of a, you know, it was just osmosis. It was Michael Pollan was becoming a better known writer at the time. And there was just more talk about um, you know, our local food sheds and, and industrial farming. And I'd always been a meat eater. And so I just started thinking a little bit more about 
what that meant. Um, the fact that I would buy meat from a grocery store and what kind of life those animals had, had likely lived. Um, and then, you know, meanwhile, I'm talking to these hunters and thinking about the meat that they're eating, that they've hunted. Um, again, it was just an example of, wow, I've spent my whole life thinking of myself as an environmentalist. Here are these people who I'd had a really negative, um, idea in my head of, and they seem like much truer, more honest environmentalists than me. Um, and then a third thing that happened is that I met, um, Scott McCullough, the man that I'm married to now. Um, we started dating just a couple of months after I moved to Bend. Scott is not a hunter, um, but he is a fly fisherman and he started teaching me to fish. And this was just another really eye-opening um, moment in my life because um, fly fishing really gave me a taste of how um, by really participating in, in the food chain, you can learn so much about it. It just opens up this whole world. Um, I started to look at rivers in a totally different way because of my, my experiences fly fishing. And I felt like I could read rivers and understand some of the secrets that they held. And I could see what the overall health of the river was. I could look at a look at a stretch of stream and figure out where there were likely fish feeding, where there were likely fish resting. Um, I could you know, see what was going on next to the stream based on the vegetation that was growing there. And so it was just this, this whole new world that opened up for me. And I started thinking about hunting. It, it gave me this analogy, um, a way to think about hunting that, that suddenly made sense to me. Like, okay, through fly fishing, I've been able to learn how to read rivers in this way that felt kind of like learning a new language. And maybe if I tried learning to hunt, it would open up this whole new language on land. Yeah, I love the way you position that talking about, you know, becoming a participant, right in this area in an ecosystem. I mean, to me, that's really what hunting is all about is, you know, shifting the dynamic shifting the way that you interact with that ecosystem when you're out in it, you know, and saying, I want to be an active participant, I want to play a role in this food chain, right. And realistically, you were doing that as, as you know, when you were fishing, right? I mean, it's like, we don't really call that hunting, right? But I mean, it's, it's the same thing. You're just hunting an animal that lives in a stream versus hunting an animal that lives, you know, up on the land. Yeah, I think it's almost exactly the same thing. For some reason, we don't generally think of it that way. And I'm not sure you know, why that is. Maybe it's just because guns are scary or, you know, I'm not sure why that is, but for some reason, yeah, we don't, we don't view them as the same thing, but I think they absolutely are. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, there is, I, I think that that's one of the big differences, right? When you take that leap from like fishing to what we, you know, think of as hunting is like, oh, all of a sudden it's like, you know, you're, um, the tool that you're using to harvest that animal is, uh, is a gun instead of a fishing pole, right? Which is a big difference. Yeah. I think it, it over, it overshadows everything and, and, and understandably so. I mean, if you think about, you know, all that we hear about guns these days in the news and in the media, you know, it's not hunting. <laughs> we have other connotations with guns, um, as Americans, and that's just kind of the way it is now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so many things, you know, I I think that 
one of the things that I learned through fishing, but then even more so through hunting is just that when you do become a participant um, in that ecosystem, it kind of in some ways puts you on that on the level with the animals and and equalizes you. And that's something that um, until I started hunting, I think I I really thought the opposite, that hunting was all about dominance, that it was about, you know, asserting your dominance over the animal. Um, and, and I think that my experience was that that's, that's backwards, right? Like we're all participating in the ecosystem just by eating food. And, you know, even if you never, never go out into the woods to hunt, you're still participating in the ecosystem. We all are. Um, hunting is really a way of acknowledging that. And in so many ways, I think that it really is a method of of respecting the animals and saying, I'm, I'm going to be on your level for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you, you have to, you have to sort of get into the mind of that animal in a way that's very different because I mean, if you want to just to get close enough to, to, to an animal to like have the opportunity to harvest it, um, you really have to like, you got to put yourself in their mindset and you got to think about like, well, what would they do in this situation? Or like interpret, you know, the, the, the sign that you see, um, the tracks and, I mean, it, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I had as a non-hunter. I feel, I felt like, you know, I've seen deer, they're easy to see, um, you know, what's so hard about shooting them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, it's one thing to kind of stay in a suburban area or even an urban area and see deer that choose to enter that area, um, or are forced into that area by, um, our own land use decisions, but, um, that's not the same thing <laughs> as going out into the woods where you could legally take an animal, um, and getting close enough to it. it they're, they're totally different things. They're totally different things and, and hunting, getting close enough to an animal out, out in an area where hunting is legal is so difficult. And that's, you know, something that is, kind of hard to explain to a non-hunter. I, I hope that I, that I did explain that well in my book, because it is really, really hard. <laughs> it is really, really hard. Right. And I mean, it, but it's also like, <laughs> I mean, part of it is, is, as you said, like different sort of land use and, you know, uh, like, yeah, there are like suburban areas where there's overpopulation problems with deer and, and, you know, I mean, some of those suburban areas, you actually can hunt deer and maybe it'd be easier in, in an area like that. Right. But but I mean, so there's there's that aspect of it. Right. But I mean, I think the other side of it is like, I mean, you know, now that I am a hunter, think of myself as a hunter, um, have spent a bunch of time out hunting, you know, tracking deer and elk like when I'm out in the woods and and I'm not, you know, looking for an animal. It's like every every time I see one with, you know, like coincidentally right or like you're hiking on a trail and like you see a deer you see some elk you know i mean immediately you think of like you immediately go back to like that moment when you're in the hunt right and you know it's like you're so frustrated because like you just can't figure out where these animals are and then if you know and it's <laughs> it like shift your perspective like when you have those uh sightings of animals even outside of that perspective you know i feel like it shifts my perspective even when i see you know deer in my yard now um, I feel like I just have have a very different appreciation for them than I did before I really started trying to get close to deer, you know, out in the woods away from my house. Um, earlier, I guess it was this fall, um, 
we had a deer actually not in my yard, but in the yard. And I live right basically in downtown Bend, but not far from the river. And, um, you know, deer do migrate through this neighborhood, particularly this time of year, starting around Thanksgiving, um, deer really do, um, become very visible in this neighborhood. And earlier this, this winter, there was a deer, um, that was in the next door neighbor's yard that just had the just enormous antlers. I mean, it was just one of these deer that just takes your breath away um, when you see it in real life. And um, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over it. I was trying to get my kids to, you know, be as excited about it as I was. And they, you know, at first were like, oh yeah, that, that is a big deer, huh? Okay. Well, I'm going to go back to my Legos. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I mean, that is an amazing deer, you know, and I'm trying to take pictures of it and kind of spent the whole rest of the day trying to see it again. And I've thought about it at least weekly since I saw it, you know, just hoping to see it again. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's impressive to me in a different way than it was before I started really looking closely at these animals and, um, you know, really paying attention to them. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's definitely like a comparison between, you know, what it's like to I, I mean, there, there's a difference, right? But um, I mean, I think uh, the only other maybe group of people that would, you know, have that level of sort of understanding or, or viewed in the same way are biologists, you know, um, and, and I, I just I think it's interesting, because I mean, that's, that's my background, right? Like before I um, got into sort of media production and filmmaking, um, I, I worked as a wildlife biologist. And, um, you know, growing up in, in the, in, on the East coast, um, I mean, I, I, I think like that, certainly that same stereotype isn't applied to like biologists, right? I mean, biologists are seen as like these people that are, you know, doing this good thing and like, they're getting close to these animals, animals, but like for the purpose of research and, and it's all good. Right. Um, but then coming out West and working as a biologist in the West, I realized like lots and lots of biologists are also hunters. And there's like a ton of crossover there. Right. And it's like because when you're a biologist and you, you know, like like you are put in the situation where you're you're out, um, you know, seeking these animals, trying to get close to them, trying to like, you know, make these detailed observations of their behavior. Um, and it's like when you do that and when you spend a lot of your time sort of just out in in the woods, you know, or uh, wherever you are making these observations, I, I think you start to feel this urge to like become a participant to like take that next step, you know? Um, and I, that's where, you know, my desire to hunt came from, you know? Yeah. I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think on the one hand, anytime you learn more about something, you're going to gain an appreciation of it and, and understand it. And it's not, it's not just biology or animals. I mean, it's anything I think about like, um, like I'm an NBA fan and I feel like sometimes I'll see a, I'll be watching a basketball game. I'll see a play, a block shot or something. That's just incredible. It's just like, how did a human do that? How, how did that even happen? And again, I'll try to show it to, you know, like pull it up on YouTube and show it to my six-year-old. And he just looks at it kind of like, huh? Well, yeah, that's, that's cool. And he'll say something like, yeah, but I could do that. <laughs> no, you, you couldn't. That's like, that's an absurd thing to say, but he is, um, he doesn't, he hasn't watched enough basketball to be able to appreciate, you know, a really incredible play. And, and I think that, um, you know, that's one of the things that 
before I started hunting, I felt like, oh yeah, I like deer. I appreciate deer. Um, and, and before I started meeting hunters thinking that probably a hunter wouldn't appreciate them. The truth is the more that you know about an animal or a population, the the more likely you are to kind of see its majesty and to be impressed by what it can do, what it can be. Um, and I, I think that that's true of everything. For some reason, I didn't recognize that when it came to hunting. I think what you were saying about biologists, you know, eventually becoming interested enough in an animal that they want to participate um, by by hunting. I think that another thing, another advantage that biologists have is that they can really see the big picture of um, how how hunting does and doesn't affect the health of a greater population. Whereas I think that for the layperson, a lot of it's so emotional. It's about that individual animal that gets killed by a hunter. Um, and I think it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, there, there's something unforgivable about that. Um, whereas a wildlife biologist is, I think, more likely to understand that, um, hey, there's a lot of these deer, <laughs> a lot of these deer out there. They're going to die one way or another. This is a way that's um, relatively painless for the animal if the hunting is done right. Um, it's responsible. It's well-managed. It's generating money for useful things like research and 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 wildlife management. Um, and, you know, this is something that can responsibly fit into the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, biologists think about populations, right? Not individuals. I mean, generally, right? Um, so that that's definitely, I think, you're, you're right. That's, that is certainly a, a key difference, I think, between... You know, if you're talking about sort of the moral and ethical, you know, uh, questions involved in, in hunting. Um, so I, 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 I do want to, you know, I kind of want to get back on track here and like talk about, well, like what what was that, you know, moment? I mean, you, you, you talked about um, I mean, you talked about a few moments that sort of led to this shift in, in thinking. Right. Um, and you talked about how you started to to fish. Um, but where, you know, at what point did you say like, yeah, I want to try this? You know, I think I, it's hard for me to pinpoint an exact moment, but I'm sure that it had to do with, with eating that it had to do with my food, um, eating meat, like I said, maybe not daily, but close to daily. Um, and just, just thinking more and more about that and thinking, Hey, there's this other, other way to get meat that's out there. That's something that based on my experience fishing could interest me, could be an interesting thing to try. Um, I started just talking to some people about learning to hunt because even when this idea first occurred to me, it didn't seem very feasible. Um, I don't know how people learn to hunt. It's very unlike a lot of other, I always kind of hate calling hunting a hobby because that seems so dismissive, but but I don't really like calling it a sport either. Um, but it's, it's unlike other pastimes in that, you know, there aren't a lot of like, it's not like you can take golf class, you know, you can take golf classes or you can learn to knit, um, by watching YouTube videos. You can, you know, there's so many ways to learn to do so many things these days. Um, but there didn't seem like there was any clear, clear path towards learning to hunt. Um, so I started asking more hunters how they learned to hunt just to kind of feel out whether it was even a possibility for me. And, and as I'd suspected, pretty much everybody had learned from their dad or their grandfather or, um, you know, an uncle, uh, it was almost always 
basically an inherited thing. Um, but I started just asking more pointedly, you know, well, if you, if you hadn't had your dad, um, who, who, how would you have learned? What would you have done? And I remember a friend of mine, Andy, who was, is kind of a hunting mentor to me, um, is the one who finally said, um, well, I took hunter safety when I was a kid. That was, that was kind of my first step, I guess, if I really had to pinpoint it. Um, and that was the first like, okay, well, that's something I could do. I could take a hunter safety class. So, um, I enrolled in a hunter safety class through the Oregon Department of, well, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, I think does arrange those classes. So that's who I enrolled through. Um, and it was, it was with this attitude of, well, I'm going to take this class and see if I think learning to hunt would, would be feasible. It still felt like just kind of dipping my toe in. It's not like the class actually, you know, would take me hunting or, or anything like that, but it seemed like, um, okay, well I can take a class. That's something that I know I can do. I can sit in a classroom (laughs) and listen to somebody talk. I've done that before. Um, so I called the state and, uh, I think it was late summer. And so most of the hunter safety classes had already been offered and already been completed. Um, there were no classes for adults left. Um, so there was what they call the mixed age class. Um, so anybody could take it. So I, I enrolled in the next one that was available and it was in a small town called Culver, Oregon, about 45 minutes north of Bend. Um, and it was at the local, what was it? I guess it was the, um, kind of like the city hall building. Um, I think the fire station was attached to it and it was just kind of a general city services building in the little classroom there. And it was two nights a week for, I don't know, four or six weeks, something like that. I showed up on the first day and it was, um, the teacher divided the class into people who were under 12 and over 12. And I was 26 at the time. It was kind of humiliating. I was the only adult in the class. And, um, yeah, I was, you know, think about being 26 and going to sixth grade or something. Um, again, it was, there's something really jarring about it at first. And, you know, I had a sense of humor about it. It was humorous, but it was also, um, kind of embarrassing. Uh, in retrospect, I think it was, I I feel so lucky that there was no adult class. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I really would have, would have taken up hunting if it had been an adult class. I think there was something really, I was so lucky that it was a class of kids and me. I learned so much from those kids and I think um, was really inspired by those kids in a way that kind of um, nudged me to keep going. One of the best things about having a class with kids is that I was a lot of, a lot of hunter safety is really about firearm safety. And um, I, I had no real experience with guns before and was just terrified of guns. And so one of the things that this class did was, it took what I had grown up thinking of as the worst case scenario, which was children holding firearms. (laughs) And it just assuaged my fears about it. Like, you know, these kids were just, they were just so responsible and they were so, um, they took the responsibility of handling a firearm so seriously that it really encouraged me and helped me get over 
um, a lot of my fear, not all of it, but a lot of my fear of guns. Um, and I also just felt like the kids were, you know, I didn't have kids yet. I, I didn't spend a lot of time around kids then. Um, and it was just this kind of powerful reminder of how, um, how good kids are at learning new things and, you know, just being really bad at something and just accepting that they're really bad at it at first and, and plowing ahead anyway. Um, they're, you know, they're good learners, which is really obvious, but it was something that, you know, as somebody who's kind of settling into adulthood and feeling kind of cocky, you know, most of the things that I did were things that I already knew how to do and could feel pretty good about. Um, it was humbling and just really inspiring and made me feel like, you know what, if these 11 year olds can learn to hunt, I can certainly learn to hunt. I mean, there are kids in my class who were impressed that I could whistle. So, um, you know, I could, I could do it. If they could do it, I could do it. Right. That's, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's an interesting, interesting observation. And I mean, I, I think, I don't know. It's I think it's particularly interesting, like in light of the politics that are going on right now at this moment. Right. Because a lot of the sort of, you know, well, I mean, not a lot. I mean, th this whole sort of gun debate that we're having right now is inspired by a group of high school kids. It's being completely reshaped by them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not they're not they're not jaded yet into thinking nothing's going to change. This always happens. You know, people always have one of two viewpoints about guns. You're never going to get them to change their mind. Um, yeah, they have, they have fresh eyes. I don't know. There's so much that we can learn from kids. And I think, um, it's a good reminder for me now as a parent to kind of think back to what, what that experience in hunter safety was like being really inspired by kids. I mean, I have two kids now, um, they're six and, and almost three. And, um, I'm, I, they, they really amaze me in a lot of ways and inspire me, but there's something different about just walking into a room of a bunch of kids that you don't know that you're not around on a regular basis. Like those kids that I took that class with, I didn't, there was no way for me to take them for granted. Um, there was no way for me to, you know, gradually over the course of 11 years, see what they were capable of. Um, the way it is with my own kids, you know, I, I, I've been around my six year old for so long now that I, I know what he is and isn't capable of more or less. That's not to say I don't underestimate him sometimes. I'm sure I do, but, um, there was something different about just walking into this group of kids that I didn't know at all. Um, an age group that I was fairly unfamiliar with. And seeing, wow, they can really, they're really capable of this. Um, and I think that as a nation, we're having, having a realization like that right now with these kids from Parkland that, um, you know, wow, they're 17 and they're, you know, really effective political organizers. <laughs> we can learn something from them. We can learn. Something. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, to to touch on that, I mean, it's, th that is a very interesting comparison. But I mean, I think there's, there's something else there, too. And there's, you know, another facet of this dialogue that's going on right now regarding gun control, um, which is, you know, the, the, the concept of like, oh, well, we should restrict guns from younger kids, right? Or at least, you know, we shouldn't like, 
you know, we shouldn't be selling kids to selling guns to, to 18 year olds. Right. Um, which I mean, like I, I agree with. Right. And I mean, obviously like these kids are doing this with, you know, um, their, their parents or guardians and, and, you know, with like a lot of oversight, et cetera. Um, but I mean, I think like the point that you made about how responsible these kids are and how careful they are with, with these guns, like it strikes me as, um, uh, it, it it brings up this whole other interesting point, right? Because like we live in this society where guns are readily available and there's lots and lots and lots of guns everywhere, right? <laughs> it's unavoidable. Um, and uh, like it, it's, I, I mean, like I'm, I'm so grateful that I didn't grow up. Um, I didn't grow up like learning how to hunt, but I grew up around guns. I had family members that had guns and it was something that we did. We would like go out to a, a, a shooting range every year and like shoot guns. And this was like a family tradition. And I got that like hunter safety you know, or not. Sorry, not hunter safety, but I got that gun safety like lesson from an early age. And like it, it just I, I, that's maybe a, a piece of this debate or that's maybe something that's missing from this debate is that like, yeah, I mean, I, I think guns are a lot more dangerous, especially in the hands of kids. If kids don't have that training. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that this, this, the hunter safety class that I took, um, I think about it a lot. still. I think about how lucky I was to have the two teachers that I had. Um, and, and, and to be in that little, you know, Culver is this little farming community. Um, it was, it, you know, in some ways kind of a throwback to this was a rite of passage. This was something that a lot of these kids had really looked forward to and worked toward for a long time. Um, a lot of the parents just sat in the class every day and, and, um, you know, supported them and, and were a part of it. This was a real kind of the platonic ideal of how kids can learn to handle firearms safely, because this was, um, this was, you know, there was a lot of involvement in the community, a lot of support for these kids, uh, but they were really learning at a young age that guns aren't toys, that there's something that need to be taken seriously. Um, and I think that, yeah, if we could wave a magic wand and have every, every kid in America get some kind of education like this, it would be helpful. But I think the reality is that, um, you know, not every community is like this little subsection of Culver, Oregon that happened to participate in my hunter safety class. Um, not every family is going to be supportive of the idea of their kid learning to handle firearms. Um, not every community has, has an outlet, a safe outlet for kids to, to practice and, and learn, learn to shoot guns. And so, um, yeah, it's, it is kind of an example in a lot of ways. And, um, and I imagine it's pretty out of reach. Yeah, I know it, it's it, it, it's I don't know. It's it's a very interesting little like subset of this this issue that you kind of brought up. I thought was important to touch on. But um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there there are you know there are um, a lot of times um, clay shooting clubs and competitions for kids in in schools and um, or maybe not in schools, but in kind of community sports programs. And and I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I think that they could be really valuable, a valuable part of of how we as a society do a better job of of addressing guns and reducing gun violence. Um you know, these, um, clay shooting clubs for kids are really safe. 
they're, um, you know, again, just teach kids how to properly handle firearms, how to respect them. I think one of the benefits for the right kid anyway, one of the benefits of, of doing some shooting, you know, in, in this kind of safe environment at a young age is that it really gives them an appreciation for the power of firearms that you can't get in an abstract way. It's like everything else that we're talking about where, you know, the more you know, the more you can respect something. Um, I think that, you know, if you're only if your only interaction with firearms is through video games or movies, they're a very abstract thing. When you actually feel the gun in your hand and you, you know, feel the kick on your shoulder and you see what the gun did even to a, you know, paper target, um, it drives home how serious it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, t- take us from, from, you know, this, this moment, I mean, for your, you know, you're in the gun safety class, obviously you haven't yet sort of, you know, dove a hundred percent into this idea of like, I'm actually going to go out and hunt. I mean, how did you, how did you go from there to like actually getting out, uh, on a hunt? Yeah. I mean, when I talk about it now, it seems like such a logical progression, but at the time it really felt like I was fumbling around in the dark. I mean, I just didn't have, I didn't know what to do next. I mean, I remember finishing my hunter safety class and just kind of thinking, well, now what? I mean, I didn't learn how to hunt (laughs) from the class and I didn't even learn what the next step should be. Um, but I think every step along the way and hunter safety was probably the, you know, was the first most significant step and, and the first lesson in this, one of the biggest things that I got is that every step of the way I met people who are just so generous in offering me, Hey, if you ever want to go shooting at the range, let me know if you ever need help figuring, you know, people were just so, um, so supportive and so excited that I was interested in something that they were passionate about. And, um, so every step of the way I did meet people who offered to help. And that was huge. Um, I think I was a little shy, especially at first about accepting people's offers to help, but, um, but I did to some degree. So, so the next thing that I did after I finished hunter safety is, um, I started shopping for a gun and I decided that I was going to, um, look for a shotgun. I was going to start by trying to hunt birds. Um, that just seemed for some reason, just a little bit more accessible than, um, you know, hunting a mammal. So I started shopping for a shotgun and I went around to some different gun stores and, um, you know, (laughs) had, had the experience of of trying to shop as somebody who didn't really know much about guns and didn't really know what I was looking for. You know, I was looking to buy a firearm, but I was also looking for some education and some guidance. Um, and boy, that was not easy to find. It was a, um, really negative, negative experience. I mean, it's still uncomfortable for me thinking about it. Um, I think that the, um, firearms industry could really, um, should really take a hard look at its, its customer service and kind of its attitude. I mean, Um, what was, what, what made it so negative? I mean, uh, is there like specific experience or interaction with like people who are trying to sell you guns or what? Yeah. But it was at, at several gun stores. I had yeah. bad experiences at, at a number of places with a number of different salesmen. They were all men. Um, yeah, it was just, there was this attitude that, um, I was just 
they were just really dismissive and condescending because I had a lot of questions because I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. It was really confusing because everybody had a different idea about what I should get. Um, you know, I thought that I wanted a pretty small gun, a pretty small shotgun, smaller gauge, lighter. Um, I even things that should be really basic, like, um, you know, should I get uh, a 12 gauge shotgun or a 20 gauge shotgun? I would get these really conflicting things. Like some people told me that a 12 gauge kicks less than a 20 gauge, which didn't make any sense to me, but I hadn't shot a shotgun before. So I didn't know whether to believe, you know, I had no experience. I had no personal experience to compare their advice to. So um, it was just really confusing and people were really unfriendly and really, um, uh, yeah, just really condescending just made me feel like crap. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting juxtaposition, right. About like how friendly the folks you're interacting with, like in this gun safety class. I mean, obviously it's kids, yes. but also the parents of kids and the teachers, right. Yes. So it's not all kids you're interacting with and you have this really positive experience and then you go, and then you're going into the, like the industry side of things and interacting with these, you know, a different, a different type of people with a different kind of attitude, I think. And it's interesting Such how negative a different that attitude. is. Yeah. I mean, if I could do it over again, I think one of the things that I would do is Evie, who was one of the teachers of the um, hunter safety class, had he, he was incredibly generous in his offers to help me. And I, what I should have done is asked if he would go with me to some gun shops. Um, but, but I didn't, I went by myself. And what happened is I just went to a bunch of them. I'm glad that I didn't cave anywhere. I, I kept going to them until I found a little shop that had a really friendly salesman. And he, he was just, he understood that I wasn't comfortable with firearms. He was patient with me. Um, little things like when he would get a, get a gun down for me to look at, he was really careful to, um, you know, open the action for me, show me that the gun wasn't loaded, show me that the safety was on. Um, you know, those are just really simple things. They're also just basic tenets of firearm handling. Um, but nobody at the other stores that I'd been to had, had bothered to do that. Um, so he just really helped put me at ease. He answered all my questions. He didn't, there was no pressure to know what I wanted or, you know, he, he just, he just really took his time with me. And, um, I ended up, you know, buying, a a youth shotgun through him, um, that, that I actually hadn't held, I held the adult version of it. Um, and then, you know, he got measuring tape out and, told me about the different specs of the youth gun. And so we kind of came up with the, the educated guess that the youth gun would fit me better than the one that I was holding in the store. Um, and so he ordered it for me. And then again, when I came to pick it up, he just was really patient with me, showed me, showed me how to take the gun apart and clean it, showed me just all these, just helped put me at ease basically as you know, a good salesman should. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's that, that juxtaposition, I mean, strikes me as, as interesting again, within the context of sort of this broader conversation that's going on right now about guns and gun control in the U S. And I mean, I think it's, I, I think a lot of people that, that um, don't have experience with guns or with hunting, I think they view sort of like the the NRA perspective, which is really the industry perspective as sort of universal across all gun owners, right? Yeah, which is mistaken. But I think it's also it's also like the in you know, the people that were 
trying to sell me these guns or, you know, purportedly trying to sell me guns. Um, these salespeople that I was talking to, they were working for the gun industry. And I think about that a lot, you know, how, um, the firearm industry or the gun, the gun lobby that's kind of representing the firearm industry. You know, we talk about how there are just all these policies and kind of posturing to try to do everything possible to maximize gun sales. Well, if you look at statistics, gun ownership is actually, the last I looked at is actually kind of going down in the country in terms of the number of people who own guns. I know that fewer people own more guns. Um, but I think that that's really interesting to me because I think back on my experience and it totally makes sense to me. It's like this, it's like this shrinking club of people you're in or you're out. Right. And, and they're, they're catering to people that already own lots and lots of guns and are yes. already experts. And because those are the people that are buying the most guns, you know, yes. and that's probably how they make the most money. Yes. But for somebody who's trying to break in, it's, it's surprisingly hard. You would think given, given a lot of the policies that, um, you know, they would be very welcoming to new, new people, <laughs> but that was not my experience. So yeah, it's it's complicated. Yeah, no, that that's I mean that's a really interesting perspective. That's something that I never went through because you know even though I didn't grow up hunting, I did grow up around guns. And when I reached a point in my life where I wanted to learn how to hunt, um, I had access to guns because I had family members that were that that were experts, right? And um, and I, you know and and I mean I had a a great uncle who had a gun collection, and I mean I inherited you know, the, the guns that I used to hunt from him. So I, I never had to like go through that experience or, you know, see sort of what that was like, you know? And I think that's common. I mean, most of the hunters I know, they rarely, if ever buy guns, mm -hmm. it's just not, you know, it's, it's definitely a part of hunting. Um, but it's not the most appealing part. It's not the most interesting part. Um, they buy a lot of gear, but it's not, not guns. Um, yeah, you know, you're talking about how people who don't own firearms kind of have this tendency to lump together gun people um, with the NRA and kind of these other things. Um, and it's so much more complicated than that. There are so many different kinds of gun people. And a good example of that is that the next step that I took to hunting after I bought my um, 20 gauge shotgun is I started going to a, a shooting range and shooting clays and learning how to use the shotgun. And um, that was kind of the gun range is kind of its own, own culture. Um, and, and hunters, hunters generally don't fit into that culture either. I mean, I, this is something that I, I hear hunters talk about and kind of witness to myself is that, um, the people who spend a lot of time at a shooting range are people who shoot for fun. They shoot for sport. They're not hunting. They're not hunters. And there is kind of this divide there. I mean, I would hear them kind of grumble about hunters like me coming in, you know, taking up space at the range right before hunting season. And then we all just disappear. And, you know, we don't bring any money into the gun club. We don't, you know, we don't generally join the club. It's really just like a, you know, pay by the day kind of a, kind of a relationship. Um, you know, we were kind of a nuisance to them, um, which is interesting because, you know, before, before I stepped into this world, I would have thought, oh, these people are all on the same side. They have so much in common. Um, but no, there are all these, all these, all these little divisions and, and little things that, um, yeah, just little differences. What happened next, right? I mean, you, you have this gun now, 
Um, you're getting some experience uh, shooting it at the range. Um, you know, take us to that moment when you, uh, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, wh- like, what was the next important step? I mean, how did you get out? Well, the the first thing that I did after I after I got a little bit more comfortable with the gun was I asked my friend Andy, who I mentioned before, um, he was going to go dove hunting um, the the opening day of dove season. And um, I think he or maybe somebody else invited me to come along and hunt. And I, I wasn't comfortable doing that, but I said, can I just, can I just come like, like, you know, for journalists out there, like do a ride along. Can I just kind of walk behind you while you hunt and see what it looks like? Because like you mentioned earlier, I just didn't even really have an image in my mind of, of what a hunt looked like, of, of what, of how that went. And this was dove hunting, which is, which is, you know, any type of hunting is so they're also distinct and different. Um, this was dove hunting on a farm, which is uh, really unlike any other kind of hunting that I've ever done, but it was still just, it was just helpful. Just every, every step of, um, exposure was helpful to me since I had none to begin with. So I just went along while, um, this group of people hunted opening day of dove season, the doves, um, would fly in just these big masses from a, uh, grain field over to a, um, reservoir and the hunters position themselves kind of early in the morning along this road between those two places. And, um, you know, fired away when the dogs, when the doves got, um, within range. And, um, it was, um, I guess there were a lot of things about that experience that surprised me, um, and, and kind of, you know, helped make me a little bit more comfortable with the idea of hunting, just being able to visualize myself in that situation. Um, it's not a type of hunting that, that I do regularly and it's not, um, uh, kind of a hunting experience that was typical for me, but it was still just helpful seeing, Oh, I remember one of the things that surprised me was just how, how matter of fact people were, they weren't, they weren't emotional about the hunting. Um, there was a little bit of a celebratory air, um, late morning when they're kind of done with the hunt and, um, started, um, breasting out the birds and preparing them for, we, we cooked them for lunch. Um, there was a little bit of a celebratory air during that, but, um, I don't know, it was all very low key and kind of laid back and, um, uh, just had a very different vibe than, than what I'd expected as somebody who was <laughs> so nervous and anxious about hunting. Um, but it was a helpful experience. And then I think about a month after that, I signed up for a hunting workshop through the state. Um, this was a, um, program that used to be, um, available in, in every state in the U S called becoming an outdoors woman. And, um, it was a one day workshop at a, um, piece of state land, um, where the, the whole goal of the, of the workshop was to help more women, um, get a foot in the hunting door. Basically, um, they had volunteer guides, um, who were all men there with their hunting dogs. Um, and they took us out in little groups and we walked around on this piece of state land and looked for pheasants. This was a pheasant hunting workshop. Um, and this was really helpful because this was, um, the whole goal of the day was we're going to, we're going to kind of teach you the steps of hunting. And again, it's, I don't do a lot of pheasant hunting and it wasn't a, um, an experience that was something that I could go out and replicate on my own, but it was still, um, 
it was still a hunting experience that was kind of broken down and taught to us step by step in a way that was really useful. I don't think that I could have just signed up for a workshop like that months earlier before I'd had the hunter safety class and kind of these other intermediate steps. But, um, but it was, a, it was a really um, big education for me. It was really helpful. And that was where I got my first, had my first kill. I shot a pheasant that day. And what was it? I mean, is, is there like, what was that like? Or I mean, is there any sort of component of like killing that first animal that, that stands out in your memory? Oh yeah. There's a lot about it that stands out. Um, I think, you know, just about every hunter I know their first, (laughs) their first hunt is really special. Um, especially if it goes, goes well, like mine did, there were a couple of things. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how much, um, my own mindset changed over the course of the day, traipsing around in this grassland, um, in Southern Oregon, I started out the day just really, um, just really torn. Do I really want to be doing this? Do I really want to be killing an animal? Um, you know, is this really who I am and who, who I want to be just really uh, kind of agonizing over, over this really big question of, do I even want to be doing this? Um, and I think I was really nervous and, um, worried about all the things that could go wrong, still just really uncomfortable holding a gun. And, um, one of the things, one of the beautiful things about hunting is you just spend so much time walking around. Um, And, you know, there's so much beauty in just walking around and having time to think and getting exhausted. And um, by the end of the day, I really, really wanted to kill a bird so damn bad. I, I, it was, it was a real shift for me. And it was something gradual that just happened through, you know, exhaustion and frustration and watching other people hunt. And, you know, it was just the the real, the process of uh, just the normal process of becoming more comfortable with the idea. Um, it was something that I'd been thinking about for, you know, over a year already at that point. But, um, but I still got so much out of that day, just all that exposure, watching these other women shoot a bird, watching their emotional reactions to it. Um, by the end of the day, when it didn't look like it was going to happen for me, I was really pissed off about it. And, um, just, uh, you know, that was, that was useful. Even if I hadn't, even if I hadn't, shot a pheasant that day, it was useful to kind of end the day feeling like I wanted to. Um, that was a big, that was growth for me. It was a shift for me. Um, and you know, when I did actually, uh, shoot a bird, the, the, my emotional reaction really startled me. Um, I had, because of all my ambivalence and all of my doubts leading up to that moment had expected to feel guilty and just, just, you know, a whole complex mix of emotions when I actually shot the bird. And instead what I felt was just, just pure euphoria. Um, <laughs> it was, it was incredibly pure, <laughs> which was shocking to me. That I, uh, Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's, that's super interesting. Right. And I mean, I think it's like, there's so much buildup to it and, and so much like thought that goes into like, well, what, like, what is this going to feel like, you know? Yeah. Um, I've talked to yeah. a lot of hunters since then and realized that I've learned that that's a pretty common response to a first hunt. Mm-hmm. But I, 
I didn't know that. That was news to me. I mean, yeah. I, I had never heard of that response before. Right. So I was really floored by it. Right. And it was pure. I mean, I felt like I was on high for, you know, probably 24 hours oh, afterwards. Yeah. I think I just felt, I feel like this is a word that gets thrown around so cheaply, but I felt so empowered by it. Mm. I just felt like I had done this thing that I, I really had never believed I could actually do. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. amazing. I, and I've, you know, done a lot of hunting since then and never had, never had that, that same feeling. It's always been, I mean, I've had other hunts that were really exciting. I, I, I they're all really exciting, but, um, but never that pure of a rush of just, Oh my God, I did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I have, I have a, you know, a, a similar experience and, and, you know, I, I think for me, like, um, I, I got that, that truly like pure sort of feeling of euphoria, actually not on the, the, not, well, not certainly not on the first hunt I went on because the mm -hmm. first hunt I went on, I didn't, I didn't kill anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, I sort of, you know, it was, it was that frustration that you explained of like, you know, at the beginning of the day, not really being sure, like, is this something I want to do? And by the end mm -hmm. of the day, like, I want to kill something. Yeah. You know? um, which, <laughs> again, was like surprising. Like, wow. OK, yeah. like, let, I'm going to try this again, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the first time I actually killed an animal, it was it was a deer. Um, and th th there was definitely like, I don't know, like there were it, it was emotional, but um, and, and in a positive way. But I think it was different because, um, like it, it didn't feel like, like I, I had a lot of help along the mm -hmm. way, um, from, from my brother-in-law who's, who's uh, a hunter. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I took this shot that, that killed this animal and he was literally like, you know, over my shoulder, like instructing me exactly on like what to do. You know what I mean? I had a lot of help with this too. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, it was like the closest to a canned hunt that I've ever had. I mean, <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. number one, it was just the dogs were just so incredible. I right. mean, people would pay a lot of money <laughs> to hunt over these particular dogs. They were just, they were just so, I mean, I've hunted over a lot of dogs, but not dogs like this. Yeah. Um, and then it was also in it, it, it was a, it was a hunt that was actually the week before the state had released some pheasants onto this land for a children, for a children's hunting workshop. So kids were learning to hunt and they had just released the pheasants before the kids um, workshop. This was a week later, but there were still, you know, a bunch of essentially planted pheasants sure. on this land. So um, and we had, you know, there was there were two volunteers helping my little group of four women hunt. So it was it was similar. And there was it was all being set up and massaged to be as successful as possible for right. us and that's good i mean i think you need that right because i mean to get that uh oh, it's it's yeah. it's such an important moment to you know to as you said to, like that like it's, empowerment i think is a good word but also just um you know recognition of like i'm capable of this right you know? to give you that confidence mm -hmm. um especially because when you go out on your own and try to do it you know you're you're it's going to take a lot of days of traipsing around yep um, to get any shot at a bird probably. So, um, I think, yeah, it's like, you know, again, fishing is a good example. It's like fishing in a stocked pond when you learn, you know, you're learning to cast and you're learning, you know, all these, all these little basics. And, um, you know, if you go out and get skunked for, for a, a long day, 
on the water, you're not very likely to go back and do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, if you actually reel a couple of fish in, you know, you get that, get the bug and then maybe you go out and do it on your own. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you've gone out on a lot of hunts subsequently. I mean, is this, I mean, do you hunt regularly now? You think of yourself as a hunter? I do think of myself as a hunter, but I don't hunt regularly right now because I have these two little kids and it's been tricky. Um, the last, I'd say five years, um, it's been really tricky figuring out ways to work hunting into my family life with these little kids. Um, you know, I did, did hunt when my first son was really little, I did some hunting and it was hard. I mean, he was, you know, I was breastfeeding and, and wanted to bring him along on camping trips, but, um, couldn't really hunt effectively with a baby on my back or, um, you know, even nearby. So, um, yeah, it's been kind of tricky. What, what I've been doing is, um, kind of preparing them for hunting without actually doing the hunting. So we've been, we do a lot of camping. <clears throat> My oldest son has been taking up um, archery, which is something that I'm trying to learn to not sure that I'll actually do any bow hunting, but, um, but I'm enjoying just the, the arrow shooting part of it is fun. Um, that's what he's learning to do now. Um, we just do a lot of, you know, trying to get close to animals, trying to observe animals, learning about their tracks and their scat and just, you know, animal sign. Um, they're both starting to fish a little bit, which is really fun. So, um, I think it's going to be kind of a gradual family, um, family affair. I do think in the next couple of years, they'll probably be old enough that we can do a little bit of hunting. I can do a little bit of maybe duck hunting with them. Um, but it's, it's been hard lately, um, finding ways to, to hunt with them. And I don't get enough time with them as a working mom to want to, you know, be gone on weekends all fall. Um, so it needs to be something that we can do together. So it's going to be a gradual thing. <laughs> sure, sure. But I mean, I think it, it's, it seems very clear that like a lot of these things that you're prioritizing as far as what you're teaching your kids are influenced by these experiences that you had through oh, going yeah. out and learning how to hunt. Oh, yeah, you know? I want to hunt with them. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's um, you know, since I first found out that I was going to become a mom, it's something that I've dreamed about. I just think it's um, it's really... I think it can be really high quality family time. I mean, mm -hmm. I love camping with my kids and being outside with my kids. And then I think having, having a real adventure with them where we're sharing a common goal and, and seeing, you know, their own creativity in terms of how to, how best to approach a particular hunt and, and seeing what they're capable of and seeing them, you know, discover some of the things that I feel like I've already started to discover in terms of what they're capable of and, and how they can connect to the land around them. Um, it's something that I really look forward to. And, and it's, um, the one thing that I think is going to get my husband to learn to hunt too. He, he has said that <laughs> if, if our boys want to do it, he'll learn too. Um, one of my hunting mentors, uh, is somebody who learned to hunt as an adult with his sons when they were 12 and 14 or something like that. And, um, he told me some really wonderful stories about the three of them learning to hunt together and how it was this really great experience for his sons to see their dad learning something alongside them. You know, so much of parenting is us teaching our kids how to do stuff or, or, you know, trying to, um, 
be the expert for them, basically. And he said that it was this really wonderful equalizing experience for the three of them to be learning something together, for his kids to just be, you know, rolling over laughing at at what a bad shot their dad was, <laughs> you know, when a duck duck flew right over them and, you know, their dad missed wildly. And um, just, you know, they just had, I think it was just this really special experience for them that really helped them bond. And I think, um, you know, that's something that our family has to look forward to. Even though I have some hunting experience, I'm I'm not a particularly experienced hunter, and I think it's um, I, I I won't be surprised if my kids overtake me pretty quickly, <laughs> and I'll be able to learn from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super awesome, and and you know that my my family's kind of going through that as well. You know, my my wife and I have been talking about like learning how to shoot a bow, and and my four year old is you know he's like getting maybe close to that point in time mm-hmm. when we're ready to sort of, um, start, you know, mm-hmm. um, that learning process for him. So we're, we're definitely looking forward to that as well. Um, you know what I wonder, I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm sure you still have, uh, lots of friends and, and relatives that, that live back East. Um, I mean, what do they think about, um, this transformation and about you, uh, as a hunter? Well, one of the great things about having written a book about it is that, uh, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've really laid out my case right. in a lot of words. Um, so the, the family members and friends who wanted to could can really um, see what went on in my mind and, 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 you know, have that experience with me. And so um, it's been a really nice way to be able to explain to people um, who know me and love me and maybe are really perplexed by who I've become um, that, you know, I am still the same person. It's just, uh, just, and now I'm even better. Now I know how to hunt too. Um, and it's been, um, it's been really good. It's been really fun. Um, hearing from like friends of mine from college, for example, who read the book. And, um, I think that it's been really, um, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences of learning to hunt is getting to share it with people who probably aren't hunters themselves and never will be, but just getting to share that experience with them in a way, um, has been really rewarding. I've had a number of friends that, uh, I grew up with or friends from college who, who've said, wow, I never, never would have thought that I'd read a book about hunting and I couldn't put it down once I started reading. So, um, it's fun to get to share this kind of um, new and maybe to them exotic part of who I am with them. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily valuable. I think what you have done in writing this book about this experience that you went through, I mean, um, because there are lots of people that, that have this perspective, you know, and like to, to sort of, um, to be able to sort of like go through that experience with you and to see this transformation in the perspective that you had toward, I mean, all these different complicated facets of, you know, what it takes to learn how to hunt and to become comfortable with a firearm. I mean, all the stuff that we've discussed, um, I think is, is extremely valuable for people and not just for people on sort of one side of the issue or the other, you know, I mean, it's, I, I see it as a way to bring, to depolarize. Um, yeah. I, I see it that way too. I mean, I think that it's, um, I think it's also even just, even like zooming out further from that, I think it's just, um, 
it's rare these days that people can can change their minds about anything. Yep. And um, I think that there's a lot of power in helping people view something differently and and changing their minds about something, even if it's something small and kind of tangential to their daily life. You know, people whose minds I would say I've changed about hunting are not people who have much to do with hunters or hunting on a daily basis. But um, I still think that there's a lot of value in just showing people that um, there's a new way of looking at something. Um, You know, we don't all have it figured out. We can all learn from each other and um, other people have valuable perspectives. And I think, um, you know, my own experience and, and how I've, learn to look at hunting so differently is is just a good reminder of that. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been mostly talking about sort of how, you know, you have been able to reach out to folks who maybe, you know, don't have much of an understanding of hunting or who maybe have a negative perspective, perspective on hunting and sort of show them, you know, the benefits and like sort of show them this is what it's really like. Um, but it goes, it goes the other direction too, right? And, you know, I just kind of want to touch on like that aspect of it, because like now you're a hunter, you know, you can Mm -hmm. go out and say like, I'm a hunter. This is, you know, a part of my life. This is who who I am. Um, And now you have the ability to reach out to fellow hunters and say like, hey, look, you know, here's another aspect of my perspective that can maybe shed some light on your belief system. Right. And and I mean, I'm kind of talking specifically right now about like what's going on regarding the gun control debate in the U S right now. Um, and like, uh, you know, the, the perspectives on like the NRA, I think are central to that. And I mean, you've written a few, I mean, um, uh, since you've written this book, I mean, you've written articles like encouraging fellow hunters to, uh, you know, to not support the NRA or to like, take a closer look at like, is Mm -hmm. the NRA really representing you, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that now is such a good, I mean, it's kind of like what people like me have been beating the drum about for a while, because I feel like um, things are likely to change in this country. And um, by not stepping forward and being a part of the conversation, hunters have made a conscious decision to kind of let other people decide the fate of gun laws in this country, which you know, whatever side you're on, there's something kind of dangerous about that. Um, I don't know, we should be involved. I feel like there's so many reasons why hunters should be involved in these conversations. I think, like I've said, I think we can really lead the way in terms of finding a middle ground, because I think we're people who um, understand the value of firearms, um, understand, you know, how they are important to a way of life that's really valuable to a lot of Americans. But I think we also understand the power of firearms and the importance of of having sensible laws to regulate them. Um, and I think we also can serve as an example of how um, it doesn't have to be either or. There can be a middle ground. As hunters, we are subject to all sorts of firearm laws. Um, that regulate, you know, what kinds of firearms we can use for different types of hunting, when we can use them, where we can use them. And we understand that having sensible gun laws doesn't mean an end of guns. 
um, we can have both. There's a middle ground that's possible there. And we're a good example of, of how that can be achieved. I also think that there's just, there's a risk for hunters in not standing up and, and helping to be a part of the solution to this epidemic of gun violence in the U.S. There's a risk of overreach, right? I mean, if, if the pendulum swings really hard the other way, um, you know, and, and there, there is some sort of gun ban, which I think is highly unlikely, um, that would be detrimental to hunters. I think it's in their own best interest to be a part of the solution, be a part of some common sense solutions. Um, I think that staying quiet and trying to avoid the controversy hasn't, hasn't been working well for anybody. I think that's unlike a lot of other people, a lot of other Americans. I think that's, that's how a lot of hunters want to deal with it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wonder just, you know, I mean, sort of more like as from your perspective as a journalist and the conversations that you've had with, you know, lots of different hunters, um, you know, Mm -hmm. with all these different perspectives that you've discussed over the course of this conversation. I mean, like, uh, do like, does the NRA come up? I mean, are these folks NRA supporters or, 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 I mean, it comes up. Some people are, but I think that, um, you know, I, I would say that as a journalist in a rural area, I meet a lot of NRA supporters. Um, as a hunter, I meet a lot of hunters who are not NRA supporters. And I think that um, it's a mistake to assume that, you know, anybody with a gun is an NRA supporter. Um, just like it's a mistake to assume that, um, you know, just because, yeah, I'm just... It's just these kinds of assumptions that are based on stereotypes are are not helpful to anybody. Um, I I meet gun owners all the time who are really frustrated by the NRA. You know, think about how many um, how many Americans own guns. I mean, it's it's I don't know one third of all American adults or something own guns. Um, You know, so you're looking at a lot of Americans who have kids in schools, who um, Americans who have some sort of family member or experience with domestic violence. I mean, people who, who have all sorts of experiences, um, you know, on all different sides of, of gun issues. And so, um, it's a diverse group of people. Um, even if you take the NRA's word for its membership being 5 million people, that's a, that's a tiny fraction of gun owners. Um, so I think that's something that's something that gun owners who disagree with the NRA need to do a better job of, of finding a way to make their voice heard. And, you know, it, it is the vast majority of Americans who want to see some changes in the gun laws in this country. Um, we've, we've somehow let this, this tiny kind of radical group speak for us. And it's, it's, it's been harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, are there, I mean, are there any groups that you feel like do represent <laughs> you as a hunter, like your perspective? Well, I have, I have an advantage here because I'm actually on the board of directors of a nonprofit called Gun Owners for Responsible Ownership. So oh, as a board cool. member, I get to help make sure that the group resp- um, you know, represents hunters accurately. Um, we're actually a pretty apolitical group. A lot of what we do is educating gun owners on the importance of fire, safe firearm storage, for example. You know, all guns should be stored, unloaded, locked and in a separate location from the ammunition, which should also be stored locked. 
Um, these are really basic things. I mean, even the NRA, if you scour their website, they have some messages of safe storage too. Um, and yet there are statistics that show that 1.7 million American children live in homes where firearms are not stored properly. Um, so I think that there's a lot of room for groups to represent firearm owners who, you know, believe in their right to bear firearms, but also acknowledge that with that comes some responsibility. And I would say our group believes that one of the responsibilities is making sure that people who shouldn't have firearms can't get them. So, um, you know, that that's going to require some some legal changes in this country. But um, yeah, I think that there are groups that can represent that can be representative of of gun owners um, who have kind of a desire for some some strengthening of gun laws in this country. I know Giffords, the group that Gabby Giffords and her husband started. Um, they're both gun owners. That's a that's a group that's you know considered a gun control organization, but they're very careful in terms of what they advocate for. Um, they're very careful about respecting the rights of gun owners. Um, I think that if you take a closer look at a lot of the gun violence prevention groups in this country, um, they're, they're pretty respectful, I think, towards gun owners who want to make a difference. Um, they're not looking to take away anybody's rights. They're just looking for some reasonable safeguards. Gotcha. That's awesome. That's uh, super good information. Um, I mean, that's a question I get a lot of like, well, you know, if the NRA doesn't really represent gun owners, then like, is there a group that is? I mean, is there something we can join? I mean, something we can support. So um, that's that's super valuable information. Um, yeah, responsibleownership.org. That's my group. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> I didn't found it, but I joined the board. Um, uh, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. And I think we're doing really good, important work. It's not very political, but it's the kind of thing that can can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, you know, there's so there's like one uh, one final question. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure if this will end up in the episode, but I just have to ask this because, um, you know, so I just a little bit of, you know, very brief background. Um, I spent four years working as a California condor field biologist and uh. then ended up producing uh, my first my first uh, documentary film um about uh california condor uh california condors and like the the sort of conservation issues uh surrounding that um uh you know reintroduction program um so you're the rare hunter who's not going to yell at me for my stance on lead so that's that's exactly <laughs> what i was going to bring up right is i i just wanted to like you know make sure that um you know you're shooting non-lead ammunition <laughs> i yeah I am. And so, I actually I actually advocate in the book that we should we should ban lead ammunition, period. We should just get rid of it. There's yeah. really no excuse for it. And it's frustrating to go to places like um like shooting ranges where they actually don't want you using steel shot. Right. Um is really frustrating to me because it just seems like um you don't have to be an even if you're not an environmentalist at all. Just look at it from a financial perspective. You know, you're just 
blasting lead into this area and you're creating a, basically a super fun site mm -hmm. that somebody's going to have to pay to clean up later. Mm -hmm. um, why, why do that? Yep. We could nip this in the bud right now. And it always frustrates me when I hear from um, hunters and other, other gun owners who, who complain about the cost of non-lead ammunition. And I feel like we've kind of done this to ourselves from an economic standpoint of supply and demand by making non-lead ammunition this, this rare specialty item that's only used for certain types of hunting. I mean, what we really should do is just ban lead from ammunition. And then I have to think that the economics would, would lower the price of this non-lead ammunition. Well, it's, al it's already happening. Right. And so, I mean, I, I talk about this, this issue all the time. And I mean, I mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, the, the first few hunts I went on, I went on with, um, with my brother-in-law who is an avid hunter and knew nothing about the lead ammunition issue before mm -hmm. I met him. And over the course of a number of, you know, fairly heated conversations and debates, um, I, you know, just a, a, a couple of years ago, I mean, if, if, you know, after going out on a few hunts with him and having a bunch of these conversations, mm -hmm. you know, we, we met up, um, we, you know, meet up every Thanksgiving and, and, and go, you know, do a little bit of hunting. And, um, uh, we showed up. Um, and the first thing he said to me was, um, check out the ammo I bought and, mm -hmm. uh, and it was non-lead. Um, and he was really proud <laughs> that he'd taken mm -hmm. a photo in the yeah. store where he had bought it because he had discovered that this non-lead, um, ammunition was actually less expensive than what he had previously been purchasing. And he was like, so happy that, you know, it was, it was like, oh, it's finally cheaper. So now I can start buying it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's already happening. Right. And I mean, it's like, I, if you're talking about premium ammunition and a lot of hunters, like they want to buy the best stuff right. because they want to make sure that they, they, you know, take that animal down. Sure. Um, and when you're comparing like, you know, high quality ammunition, the lead core stuff to the non-lead, it's pretty comparable. You're going to eat this animal and, you know, nobody, nobody would buy meat at a grocery store if it had been, you know, slaughtered using some method that left traces of lead in the meat. Um, you know, we should, I feel like a lot of hunters are extremely conscientious about the health of, of the meat that they're eating and just the food that they're eating in general. I think that that's one of the things that hunting, it, it just really raises awareness about where our food comes from, what are, what we're putting into our own bodies. Um, yeah, get the lead out. I totally agree. Write about it. And I wrote about it in the book and I actually get a lot of flack from it from other hunters. So it's nice to, nice to talk to one who agrees with me about yeah, that. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, like how you became aware of that, of that issue. Um, you know, I think it's something, again, this is just real credit to the people who helped educate me as a hunter. I feel like it's something that I was made aware of right away um, because I think even in my hunter safety class, I was told, uh, you know, when, when they were kind of summarizing some of the hunting laws, one of the one of the things that was mentioned was the importance of using non-toxic, non-lead ammunition when we're hunting waterfowl. Right. And so that just kind of raised a flag in my mind. And then I remember, you know, talking to other hunters like my friend Andy, <clears throat> who just said, yeah, and you know what? You can just use non-lead ammunition all the time if right. you want to. I mean, it's, there's, it's just, it's just plain smart. Mm -hmm. His dad is a wildlife biologist. And so um, it was something that he was aware of as well. So yeah, it's, 
it's one of the one of um you know a couple of instances where I feel like um hunters are oftentimes a, a kind of impressively progressive community and I feel like um we're we're pretty behind the times when it comes to ammunition. I, I do agree that that's starting to change, and I'm glad to see that. I I know it was really hard finding non-lead ammunition for my rifle, for example. Um, and I think that that's becoming easier. Um, and yeah, we just need to kind of keep talking about it, and I think keep the pressure on because it's it's important. Absolutely, it's important. yeah. And and I mean, I think it's uh, yes. I think I think a lot of hunters are aware of you know the lead issue within the context of waterfowl hunting because it's been illegal to hunt waterfowl, um, you know, using lead shot since 1991. Um, but for some reason, like it's just taken a lot longer to get that message across when it comes to, you know, high powered rifle ammunition and the fragmentation that, um, occurs when those bullets pass through an animal, which is, uh, I mean, that's the specific issue that is, um, you know, a problem for California condors, but it's also a problem for all scavenging species. Um, yeah, so and I think that hunters hunters have a real interest. I mean, this is something that gets written about and talked about a lot lately, how it's important for hunters to be viewed as conservationists. Yeah. That's just an important thing throughout throughout the community. And I mean, I write about this in the book how as hunting is on a national decline, and I know there was a little uptick for a while, but I know here in Oregon it's still on the decline, for example. Um you know, more and more hunting policy, more and more land use policy, more and more private property that's posted, no hunting, all these decisions are going to be made increasingly by non-hunters. It's really important that we pay close attention to how we're perceived by by non-hunters, by the rest of the community, as we become, you know, a smaller and smaller minority of Americans. And I think it's very hard to make the case. I know we're conservationists. We have we have the environment and the animals' best interests in mind. It's very hard to make that case when, at the same time, we're grumbling about, um, you know, not blasting lead out into the environment. Um, this is a known toxin. Um, you know, once it's out there, you can't get it back. Um, I don't know. These are these are the kinds of things that I think as hunters we really need to take a closer look. Um, I, I think we we should be making the case for why we are conservationists, um, why why we share this interest with conservationists. But I think lead is a good example. I think some of our some of some hunters' um, uh, opinions about wolves are another example. I think there are just these these particular instances where you know they really contradict that. And we need to, we need to really take a closer look, um, at, at how true we are to our conservation beliefs. Um, if we're going to keep doing things like shooting lead ammunition into the environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and I mean, I think, you know, just as sort of a, like one final point here, I mean, I think just to kind of bring this full circle to like the very, you know, one of the first things we started talking about here, which was, how big of a difference it makes when you can talk to somebody face to face. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when I, uh, worked as a condor biologist, one aspect of my job was to literally drive from hunting camp to hunting camp within the range of the condor mm -hmm. and just talk to people about the lead mm -hmm. ammunition issue. And mm -hmm. I swear to God, I never was unsuccessful, like not mm -hmm. a single time. I mean, the vast majority, I mean, because there was this big, you know, sort of education and outreach push that the organization I worked for did within this 
specific region where the condors were foraging, right? Um, and it was very successful. And so, I mean, the vast majority of hunting camps that I would drive up to, um, the folks would, you know, see me coming in, in my rig and be able to tell that I was one of the condor biologists. And they'd say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're shooting the non-lead stuff, right? And mm-hmm. the handful of people that I would approach that were shooting lead ammunition, every single one of them, you know, was you know, walked away from the conversation being like, oh, I had no idea and I'm mm-hmm. going to buy only non-lead from now on. And if I harvest an animal with the lead stuff that I have in my gun, I will bag up the gut piles to make sure that the condors and other mm-hmm. scavengers don't consume it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like just it was remarkable to me that, you know, like 100 percent of hunters were yeah. receptive when I approached them face to face about that issue. Because I think we do care about I mean, it's it's. I think hunters are conservationists and do care about the environment, do care about animals. And so, yeah, it makes sense that once they're aware of this issue, mm-hmm. they'd come down on the right side of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the NRA is, is uh, I mean, they are, they are the enemy in re- regarding the lead ammunition issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are just, they're putting out misinformation and they're, they're putting out messaging that, you know, intentionally to try to convince hunters that efforts to ban lead ammunition are a, uh, thinly veiled effort to take away guns and it's Mm -hmm. just not true and you know um so i you know i i've had you know frustrations and and yeah with the nra going back to like you know that that time right and and just like uh so frustrating to like just see that that false information getting put out and and how it affects you know lots of hunters because even though lots of hunters aren't nra members like that trickles down you know and yeah and yeah and it's exactly because it's it's very frustrating then that hunters are often assumed to be nra members so right. the two are lumped together in mm-hmm. so many people's minds and i think that that's just it's really it's not true and i think that it's really detrimental to hunters particularly as again you know we have this this kind of um daunting public relations task ahead of us where we need to do a better job of educating the non-hunting public about, you know, our role in wildlife management and how we really are conservation allies. We really share a lot of the same goals as non-hunters and want to see a lot of the same outcomes. Um, We should be working together on things. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's an example where um, our association, even though it's oftentimes false with the NRA is, is detrimental to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a super fascinating and really interesting conversation. I, yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for, for taking the time and for, um, I mean, man, we've been chatting for an hour and 40 minutes. Um, To learn more about the work of gun owners for responsible ownership, you can find a link on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC143. This episode was produced by myself, Catherine Dunning, and hosted by Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.